Good morning, Harvest Church. Uh, it's my joy and my honor and privilege to be here to preach Christ to you this morning. So if you would, go ahead, if you haven't already, and find your way to uh, Mark uh, chapter 10, verse 17. And I'll make my way there as well. So I'm sure you've heard the term, count the cost. And uh, we like to use that a lot in my family to make decisions. So let's count the cost. What would it look like if we make this decision? If we go through with this, what's going to be the fruit of this? What is it going to cost us to go to that event, to do that thing? Usually in life, everything is going to cost you something. There's something that it's going to cost you. And asking these types of questions can often help you understand a clear picture of all the factors involved and help you make a decision. The text today is not primarily about money or possessions, but it's about counting the cost of following Jesus. The rich young ruler prompts Jesus to give him the rich young ruler prompts Jesus to give him a clear picture of what the kingdom is or what eternal life is. This is one of the clearest pictures that we are going to see in Mark of what the what it's going to cost to follow Jesus. And this man asks a very good question and he gets a very good picture painted by Jesus. And Jesus uses this opportunity to also explain to his disciples what it means to follow him what it means to count the cost of following him. And this cost, church, is much greater than any money, success, security that you could ever imagine. But the reward is beyond anything that you could ever imagine. Today, we get to see this clear picture in the text. The main point of the message today is that disciples of Jesus despite great cost, can be confident in the reward. Disciples of Jesus, despite great cost, can be confident in the reward. And I might ask you, you might be asking, why do I need to hear this message? And I'd like to at least present to you three possibilities of why you need to hear this message today. If you're not a disciple of Jesus, I pray that you count the cost and find it worth it. If you are a disciple of Jesus, then I pray you will be reminded of the cost, your cost and the cost of Christ. And I pray this gives you confidence in your future inheritance. And I hope to walk us through this text today by asking the question, why are disciples confident in the reward? Why can we be confident in the reward? And we're going to answer that as we walk through the text. First, Jesus is the greatest treasure. Verse 17 through 22. Then we'll see that Jesus can do the impossible. Verse 23 through 27. Then lastly, Jesus leads us to the Father's inheritance. We'll look at that in verse 28 through 31. Now that you know where we're going, let's pray and ask God's help. Father, we, we come to you now in this moment, God, desperate for you. We all, we all are desperate for you. We are so needy, despite if we realize it or not, we are needy for you. There are things that you ask us and things that we need in this life that we just are incapable of doing. 
and we're desperate for you. We're desperate for you now, Lord. I'm, I, I, we are desperate to be fed by you now from your scriptures. We are desperate to feast upon Christ this morning. We need that, God. We don't need a bullet point list. We don't need rules, regulations. We don't need those things. We need you. And we ask that you would show yourself to us today as we look at this text, God. Would we all be able to worship this morning? We ask that in your name. Amen. So first, Jesus is the greatest treasure. I'm going to read verse 17 through 22, and then we'll spend some time talking about that. As he was sitting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. And Jesus looked on him, or looked at him, loved him, and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So even though Matthew tells us uh, in his gospel that this is a rich man, a rich young man, uh, Mark leaves those details out, at least at this point in the text, because he is purposefully trying to apply this to everyone. And Jesus is purposefully trying to apply this to his disciples. So it's important for us to uh, have that perspective as we read this, that this is being applied to us. It's being applied to all. There's a clear application here. And at first, it seems that this man... Uh, is very humble and uh, acknowledges that Jesus is the good teacher. There's, uh, there, there are examples in scriptures of men being called good. Uh, we can do some good things, but the scriptures are very clear that there is only one person that is good, and that is God alone. God alone is good. But he had been deeply impacted by Jesus so he was willing to come to Jesus and bow down before him and call on him and say, good teacher. So we, 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 we are understanding that he's coming. He's acknowledging some positive things about Jesus. He's humbling himself before Jesus. He's calling. So it seems like there's a lot of positive things going for this man. He has great respect for Jesus. And he actually asks a really great question. No one yet had asked Jesus such a clear question of such magnitude. The man asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Eternal life would be the most important thing any of us could ever ask. The eternal life mentioned in Mark's gospel is another way to say kingdom of God. How can I get into the kingdom, he was asking. What he's asking is a very good question. But if we read this closely, church, you will see he thinks he can earn his way into the kingdom or he can earn his eternal life. Jesus does not immediately give the man an answer, but perhaps perceiving that the question of the man was asking was not the question that was actually in his heart. Jesus asked him a, que Jesus asked him a question. Why do you call me good? 
And what Jesus is doing is he's trying to refocus this man's attention to God. Jesus, at this point, is not revealing his identity as the Lord and Savior, as the messianic king. I know you and I are thinking about that. You and I are reading that, and we, 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 we are thinking, man, this is uh, ironic that Jesus is the good one. He is the only good one who has not sinned. And this man's coming to him and saying, good teacher, like, how does this man know this? But that's not what's happening here. And Jesus is redirecting this man's attention to God because he, and at this point in the story, he has not revealed his messianic identity. This man is not coming to Jesus because he thinks he's God. This man is coming to Jesus because he wants a one up from another good old boy. He thinks he's a good old boy, that he's done all the good things, and he's going to another good old boy to get a leg up. He's trying to network. He's trying to figure out how he can get in. He's not really submitting and humbling himself before Jesus. And so Jesus is asking these questions to expose this man's misguided eagerness and his false humility. Jesus then immediately lists five of the Ten Commandments. All of these commandments listed are horizontal, dealing with other people. And these commandments are good, but Jesus purposefully leaves out all of the vertical commandments toward God. And we'll touch on that in a minute. The man's asking for something else he can do. Above and beyond the law. The man's eagerness and the fact that he is asking the question reveals his insecurity and his inability to fulfill the law or the inability of the law to save him. He did not feel sure enough that what he had done was enough to to merit eternal life. He's asking Jesus, what else is there to do? He, He knows there's something in his spirit that knows, hey, this is not enough. There's something missing here. And verse 21 says that Jesus looked on him and loved him. The word look means to look intently or to examine or to scrutinize. The man may have been prideful and hypocritical, but we should see him more as misguided, unreflective, hasty, even childlike. Although not willing to acknowledge his need to turn to trust and treasure Jesus, Jesus saw this misguided child and loved him. Jesus looked on him and loved him. The word here for love is the highest expression of love in the New Testament. This is the love that characterizes God and the type of love that only God is worthy of. Jesus looks on this man as a misguided child with love. This man seems not to want God, but only want eternal life. This man does not want to humbly listen to God. He does not want to be comforted by God like a child to rest in his lap. But he wants a quick question and a quick answer. As we'll see in a minute, he was not willing to give up everything. And how wonderful that Jesus wants to instruct us and how gracious he is to instruct this man Jesus is not trying to shame the man. Jesus is not trying to catch the man in some verbal trick. That's not like our king. Jesus gets to the heart of the matter, which is the man's heart. The heart of the matter is that you have to give up everything 
excuse me, the heart of the matter is that you have to be willing to give up everything. Not that you necessarily will, but you have to be willing to give up everything. Jesus demands you treasure him above everything else in your life. Possessions in themselves or a desire to obey the law are not intrinsically bad, but they often create a false sense of security, success, and satisfaction that are easy, that are easy for us to hold on to and hard for us to let go of. Poverty itself is not a virtue Jesus is uphold, that Jesus is upholding. Often physical poverty, often emotional poverty, helps us see our spiritual poverty. Without some kind of poverty or lack, we will feel self-satisfied, successful, and secure. But it's false. Jesus is asking him to be stripped of all his self-satisfaction, success, and security in the law and his possessions to help him see that the man is completely helpless to earn eternal life. Jesus is offering this man eternal life if he will follow. But follow who? Follow him. Follow Jesus. Even if the law is kept, even if all the possessions are accumulated. There is one thing this man is lacking. One thing. The man was right to feel unsure or insecure about his eternal life. There's something else this man must do. There's one thing this man must do. And it reminds me of Psalm 27 when David says, One thing I have asked for the Lord that I would seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And this reminds me of when Jesus explains the greatest commandment when he says, The Lord our God, the Lord is one, and he shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the one thing the man did not have. He was not willing to follow Jesus. And this is the one thing the man must do. And Jesus' answer here is amazing. Let's not brush over it. Jesus answers the man's question, what must I do with follow me? And in answering with follow me, he offers himself as a substitute for the law. Jesus answers the man's question not with another law, but with himself. Jesus does not primarily want your rule-keeping He does not want your religious behavior. He does not want your church attendance. He wants you. And he's going to do everything he can until he gets you. That's what he wants. That's what he is offering. He's offering himself. Come follow me. Keeping the commands is not the same as being a disciple of Jesus. Keeping the commandments is not the same as being a disciple of Jesus. This is a call of discipleship. It's a call to follow Jesus. Jesus answers the question, what must I do with follow me? And answering with follow me, hear me, I'm not not repeating myself. He also offers himself as a substitute for the man's possessions. Jesus is saying, follow me. He's offering himself as a substitute for the law and a substitute for the man's possessions. 
The phrase treasures in heaven was a common phrase associated with merit. Jesus uses this term here to further emphasize that the treasures of heaven come not through effort, but through him. This is a call of discipleship, a call to follow Jesus. Our satisfaction, our security, and our success comes from Jesus. The man did not have nor want the joy of God's goodness and God's approval. Keeping any principle or commandment or rule is much easier for our flesh than a relationship. Keeping any principle or commandment or acquiring possessions is much easier for our flesh than a relationship. Because we think we're in control and we don't have to surrender. The law and possessions require less relationally and less giving up of control. Jesus will not let you settle for anything less than himself. Jesus fulfills the law, and Jesus is the greatest treasure. God's primary way of relating to his people throughout the entire Bible and now is relationally. Even in the garden, we see he walked in the cool of the day. We see this throughout Scripture and over and over again. He wanted a relationship with his people. He does not present an idea. He does not present a force, a position, a political party. He presents himself. Come, follow me. And he's asking the man and he's asking you to follow him as one of his disciples. As one commentator I read said, the call of discipleship involves a cost of discipleship. The fishermen leaves their boats. The tax collectors leave their booths. One bystander on Jesus' way to the cross was even pulled in to carry the cross. Jesus' call to follow him is not adding another obligation or another relationship to your life. But his call to follow him judges, replaces, and subordinates all other obligations and relationships. Hear me, church. You have, you have one obligation. You have one relationship, and it's to Jesus. It is not to a political party. It is not to the quote-unquote evangelical voting block. It is not to your family history. It is not to your cultural past. It is not to your race. It is not to the Southern Baptist Convention. It is not to Acts 29. Whatever you want to put in that place that you think that you have an obligation to, they all are subordinate to Jesus Christ. And hear me say this, your vaccination status is subordinate to Jesus Christ. Your mask, whether you mask or whether you don't mask, is subordinate to Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying what you have to do in those situations. I know your worldview affects a lot of things. But what I am saying is, at the forefront of all of those decisions ought to be Jesus how does this reflect me following Christ? We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna make some different decisions, you and I, about some of those things I mentioned. And that's okay. But first and foremost, my allegiance is to Jesus Christ. And your allegiance is to Jesus Christ. We raise our glasses here to one king, Jesus. We have no other king here. And what a stark contrast to see his eager, 
this eagerness of this man and the confidence of this man. But he goes away sad. The word here is disheartened. The man is sad. We, we, it's more than sad, folks. It's shocked, appalled. Or it can be described visually as an overcast guy. Have you ever felt overcast? Down? I mean, I have. That, that's what's happening here. It's like everything is hopeless to this man. It is easy for us to stay in the harbor of our safe havens, but Jesus calls us out to set sail on the seas where there is no security but Jesus. This man is shocked by the call of Jesus, and it should be shocking, church. Complete, complete allegiance, complete devotion, complete surrender. This man tells us, this, the text tells us this man was appalled, but in reality, we should be shocked by his response. He had the greatest treasure in front of him right there, but he turned away. He couldn't let go. And my application, my encouragement to you, church, is let go and hold on. Whatever it is that you are holding on to that you think is bringing you security, safety, comfort apart from Christ, you need to let go. Let go. You can ask yourself, when do I feel the most angry? When do I feel the most upset? When do I feel the most um, downcast? Or even just fill in the blanks, I must, and then fill in the blanks. How, do you, how would you answer that? I must. Those are some uh, there's more I would love to share with you another time. But those are some questions you can ask yourself to help you find out what you're holding on to other than Jesus. So let go, whatever it is. And secondly, hold on. Hold on. Hold on to Jesus. I, I, I can promise you, I don't know if it's going to happen in our lifetime, or in the, there's going to be worse things that come down our way than covid there's going to be worse political turmoil than what we've seen. It's coming. It will happen. What are we holding on to, church? Every moment, every day. There are some days in the past months that I have spent, sometimes it feels like a hundred times a day, just saying, Jesus, help me. Help me. I don't know what to do here. I don't know what to think. It feels helpless. It feels, I feel hopeless. Just help me. Hold on to Jesus. And we read in verse 22 that the man went away. And in verse 23, Jesus looks around as if maybe some of his disciples might follow this man. Jesus had addressed this man's heart that kept him from following Jesus. But now he is going to address his disciples. Prepare ourselves. <laughs> um, Jesus can do the impossible. promise this won't be as convicting, maybe just a little bit more encouraging, I hope. <laughs> and Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but with God, for all things are possible with God. 
Just to be clear here, Jesus is making a joke, okay? This is not a theological thing. He's not, there's, not, there's, no, there's no place where camels went through an eye uh, into the city. Uh, like he is literally making a joke. And the point is, it's impossible. It's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's impossible. That's the point. Entering is difficult because what we are holding on to often keeps us from doing the one thing. Following Jesus. This could be anything that makes us feel self-congratulatory, prideful, or self-secure. Our pride often numbs our ability to see our true poverty and childlikeness and impossibility of entering the kingdom. This illustration goes beyond what is humanly possible. The kingdom and this eternal life is not discovered. It is not achieved. It has to be revealed and it has to be received. It cannot be discovered, achieved. It has to be revealed and received. And this news comes to the disciples as a shock, just like it did to the rich man. It was common, as it is today, to think that having great wealth might earn you a blessing with God, might earn your way into the kingdom. I'm being being blessed because God is favoring to me, and I'm on the track to have eternal favor. Riches make life easier, right? You can go out to eat more often when you don't have to cook the dishes. I mean, you don't have to cook, you know, <laughs> cook the dishes. You don't have to cook the meal and wash the dishes, you know? If you, do those, if you have a lot of money, you can do that a lot more often. It makes life easier. So that person must be blessed, right? Wrong. This is more than a surprise, but it is shocking and appalling to them. The disciples did not fully understand the vastness of what Jesus had come to do. This is more than money and possessions. The cost he would pay and the cost he would require of them. Jesus addresses them as needy children who possess nothing. In contrast to this man who had everything but lacked the one thing he needed. The man's possessions were much greater liability. This is so interesting to me. The man's possessions were a much greater liability to entering the kingdom than the helpless and humbleness of the little children. They embody and trust and surrender that Jesus is asking for. Jesus is saying that we must be like them to enter the kingdom of God. Total dependence on Jesus. The command and the explanation of how difficult it is to help the disciples to see how much they are in need and how much they need to follow Jesus. He is teaching them not to trust in their own abilities, but to trust to follow him. Accumulating possessions or great earnestness, as we see in this man, are good, but they do not earn God's pleasures or your inheritance, but only by admitting your need for Jesus like a child. And the disciples ask out of frustration, who who can be saved? But their question is a good one, and one that opens the door to unlimited hope and confidence in God. Unlike the rich man's question, which Jesus did not answer directly, what can I do? This question is what or this question is who can be saved? This comes from a more helpless understanding of our condition that Jesus is 
helping them to see. What we often understand negatively as inability, futility, lacking, weakness, God sees as an open door for him to do the impossible. So this is a really good question. Jesus answers them with, Man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Jesus answers them similarly to how he answers the father of the epileptic son. When the father desperately asks Jesus to do anything, if he can, Jesus says, if, if I can, all things are possible for one who believes. The father of the epileptic son could do nothing to cure his child. It is impossible with man. The disciples could not do anything to enter into the kingdom of God. They could not do anything to gain the kingdom of God. It's impossible with man. The father of the epileptic son and the disciples find themselves in a helpless and vulnerable place, unable to do the impossible. Do you feel that way? I, I do. Even Jesus himself would find himself in a vulnerable situation in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he experienced the terrors of the cross. Jesus was counting the cost when he prayed, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but your will. Jesus knew that the cross was going to cost him. Jesus would endure physical cost, emotional cost, and spiritual cost on the cross. Following the Father's will to go to the cross was going to cost him his life, and it did cost him his life. But it did not end there, church. It did not end there. On the third day, the stone was rolled away and he came out of the tomb. He came out of the tomb to lead a multitude of people with him. Jesus did the impossible. A man came out of the grave. I love to say this to people who think that we Christians have weird beliefs. I just rem sometimes I remind them, hey, uh, don't like the core of our belief is the fact that a man came back from the grave. Like, that's shocking. That's impossible that a man did that. that. That Jesus, I am confident that Jesus did the impossible. We're talking about a historical person who did a historical thing, namely living a life and dying on a cross in substitution for us and rising again victoriously on the third day. I have confidence in that. He calls us to give up everything in surrender to Him so that He can lead us through this life and through the grave to the Father's inheritance. Jesus leads us to the Father's inheritance. Peter began to say to Him, See, we have left everything to follow you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brother, or sister, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. 
But many who are first will be last and the last first. Peter understands what Jesus is saying, that you must give up everything to follow him. So Peter asks on behalf of the, of the disciples, he asks, you know, hey, what, what about, he's asking basically, what about us? We, we gave up everything, right? I was a fisherman. I gave up my business to come follow you. I gave up everything to come follow you. Follow you. We sacrificed everything. Following you, entering the kingdom is impossible. Then why are we sacrificing so much? Jesus, if this is impossible, why have we sacrificed so much? What's in it for us? What will we gain by our sacrifice? What will we receive? What inheritance is coming to us? Peter was contrasting the man who chose his wealth over eternal life with himself and the disciples who had given up everything to follow. And you kind of hear this self-congratulatory nature in Peter's language here. And then Jesus goes on to define what the Christian life is going to look like. As we talked earlier, earlier following him must be a radical, encompassing everything, every other allegiance in our life. Family, possessions, home, anything. And there's a, there is a raw description here of everything that we could lose in this life but what we will gain in the new life. And notice that five of these seven things listed here have to do with people. And remember the commands that Jesus listed off earlier were all horizontal commands. I wanted to make sure I said the right word. Uh, these are, these, are five, these are five, five of the seven things Jesus listed is, are about people. And then his commands he listed earlier were horizontal. Remember how Jesus himself, Jesus offers himself to the man's answers. There's a core relational aspect here that helps us in two ways. First, when we see and follow Jesus as our greatest treasure, many of those closest to us will not understand and will possibly reject us and persecute us. Secondly, secondly, Jesus is with us. So the relational aspect is to help us see we, are, we could possibly be rejected in this life by the people closest to us, fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers. You, many of you have been rejected. Many of you have difficult relationships with them because you follow Christ. And he's, saying, he's, he's bringing that to attention, but he's also saying it, you're not doing it alone. You are not alone. You are following me and I am there with you. Not only does he say that here when he's saying following me, but let's think again about what Jesus has done when he was in his eternal pleasures in heaven, how he came to this earth to be with us. Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And let's not also forget Psalm 27. I read earlier, I would encourage you to go read that whole psalm. I meditated and prayed on that a lot as I was preparing this message. And remember that the psalms are often described as the songs of Jesus. And this says, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. It's going to cost, church. But this type of discipleship has already been displayed in a simple and humble yet costly act of feeding the 5,000. The little boy, all of his food given, what did Jesus do with it? He fed a multitude. This humble and simple costly act has already been displayed of sowing seed in chapter 4 that against all odds bring us a harvest 100-fold. When seeing this feast and seeing the harvest, we can have assurance that the cost is worth it. A hundredfold. This term, a hundredfold, is used here not so you can make some sort of calculation. This term is being used here, remember, in this context, in this passage, we are in the helpless condition of a child. Does a child know what one times five is? Does a child know what one times fifty is? Does a child know what one times 100 is? No. A child can't even comprehend those things most of the time. So that's what he's saying here. He's saying the blessings that are coming to you, you cannot even comprehend. And this reminds me of Revelations where it says that the streets are paved with gold. Do you know why the streets are paved with gold? The streets are paved with gold because we won't need any money. It's like it's that worthless in heaven. I mean, it's like you might as well use money for like to fill your comforter for insulation. It's like that's how worthless it's going to be. And that's what he's trying to say here. The blessings in heaven are far more than you could ever imagine. It's going to, have, it's going to come at great cost, but you will be blessed a hundredfold. But it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. This definition of life, this opportunity is for every person who is willing to surrender. I love the promise in verse 29. I love the promise. There's no one who has left. There's, there, there, is, there is no one that has left everything that will not be blessed 100-fold. No one. No one. There's no one who RSVPs who's going to be left out. There's no outliers on the graph. There is no one. 
Every single person who follows Jesus, every single person who gives up everything to follow him will be blessed a hundredfold. And I can have confidence in that and you can have confidence in that. Why? Because Christ has done the impossible. Because he's came out of the grave, I can look back at that and I'm telling you now, you look back at that, not in this moment now when I'm preaching, but during this week when you're rejected by your parents, when you're rejected by the culture, that's when you look back and you say, I have confidence in this life, this Christian life, because Christ rose from the grave. This is going to be hard. This is going to cost me. But until my dying day, I'm looking back at that and I'm remembering that my Savior is leading me through this conflict, through this cost, and he's going to lead me even through the very depths of the grave. That's where he's leading me through. So there is no one, no one who follows Jesus, who does not have this promise. Just imagine that, church, this week sometime. I challenge you. Just imagine what he's promising here. But what I love also about this is that Father is not mentioned here on purpose because God himself will be the head of this new spiritual family and the king of this new society. In the first list, what you're forsaking, what you're going to lose, the Father is there. Why is it not in the second list? It's not in the second list because your Father is the God Almighty. Your Father is the God in heaven. Your Father is the good one that the man thought he was talking to earlier that he was confused about. This is Him. He will be your Father there. This will be a new society, a new relationships. And you, I guarantee you, Whatever you're forsaking, however difficult this life may seem, it's going to be a hundred times more than you could possibly imagine to live under His rule and under His reign in the new heavens and in the new earth. That's what we have to look forward to. This man here in this picture came and he bowed down, but he did not surrender and therefore went away sad but still holding on to the treasures, security, and pleasures of this life. If you will come and surrender all to this father, to this king, to this good teacher, he will look at you with love and lift you up and say, well done, my faithful servant. We have one more comment here to explore. This comment about the line, this comment about the line is aimed at his disciples and at us who think we've done something special by giving something up. So another, another shot to our heart. Just because you think you've given up a lot, even all the things I just mentioned, that, that doesn't get you into the kingdom. That does not get you inheritance. In fact, whatever it is in your life that you think puts you at the front of the line is going to put you at the back in God's economy. Even if it is, look at me, look at all I've cost. That's not the point here. Look, the, look at all I've given up. The point is Jesus. The point is, are you looking to Jesus? Are you following Jesus Disciples, discipleship is not a matter of just obeying commands or giving up a bunch of stuff. What Jesus demands from us, and I mean that, what Jesus demands from us, 
is total surrender to who he is and to his eternal mission. Disciples of Jesus, despite your great cost, you can be confident in the reward. Why can you be confident in the reward? You can be confident in the reward because Jesus is your greatest treasure. Jesus can do the impossible. And Jesus will lead you to the Father's inheritance. Let's pray. Father, I don't even know uh, what to ask you into in this moment now, God. I can't imagine the things that even in this congregation now that these people, your people, have possibly already lost. The things that they've already counted the cost for and the things that they're following, God. But I pray that we can have confidence today in Jesus. We have, can have confidence that you are leading us through this difficult time. We can have confidence God, because you came out of the grave, because you are seated at the right hand of the Father, we can have confidence in what you have done. We can have confidence in our life. We can have confidence, God, that you will complete the work you started in us. We can have confidence, God, that you will complete the work you started in this world. We can have confidence in your future inheritance, God. And I pray, despite the pain and the sorrow and all the things that we might lose, that we would all count the cost and find you worthy. Find you worthy. And we are so thankful that you will look on us. And when we bow our knees and we humble ourselves before you, that you will lift us up. Not because of anything we've done, but just because we were helpless and we need you like little children. So we come to you now, God. Amen.